We're in Psalm 109 tonight. Psalm 109. Uh, this is another one of the imprecatory psalms. And so it is uh, somewhat of a puzzling psalm. But let us read through it and we'll discuss it. Psalm 109, starting in verse 1. Notice the inscription to the chief musician of Psalm of David. The psalm reads like this, Hold not thy peace, O God, of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful are opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They compassed me about also with words of hatred and fought against me. And here's our old friend, Kinam in Hebrew, without a cause. We've seen that in Job. We've seen it in Psalm 69. We saw it in John 15, here we find it once again. For my love, they are my adversaries, but I give myself unto prayer. And they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Set thou a wicked man over him, and let Satan stand at his right hand. When he shall be judged, let him be condemned, and let his prayer become sin. In pretty bad shape when your prayer becomes sin. Uh, Spurgeon had a little, one of his hints to the village preachers of when does prayer, how can prayer be sin? He says, well, first of all, it depends on who's praying, right? What they're praying for and for what purpose they're praying. It was pretty good insight, I thought. So anyway, in passing, make note of that. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless, his wife a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also out of their desolate places. Let the extortioner catch all that he hath, and let the stranger spoil his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy unto him, neither let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off, and in the generation following let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered with the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth, because he remembered not to show mercy but persecuted the poor and needy man, that he might even slay the broken in heart. As he loved cursing, so let it come unto him. As he delighted not in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he hath clothed himself with cursing as with his garment, so let it come into his bowels like water and like oil into his bones." Let it be unto him as the garment which covereth him, and for a girdle wherewith he is girded continually. Let this be the reward of mine adversaries from the Lord, and of them that speak evil against my soul. But do thou for me, O God, the Lord, for thy name's sake, because thy mercy is good, deliver thou me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. And I am gone like the shadow when it declineth, and I am tossed up and down like the locust. My knees are weak through fasting, and my flesh faileth of fatness. 
I became also a reproach unto them. When they looked upon me, they shaked their heads. Help me, O Lord, my God. O save me according to thy mercy, that they may know that this is thy hand, that thou, Lord, hast done it. Let them, let them curse, but bless thou. When they arise, let them be ashamed, but let thy servant rejoice. Let mine adversaries be clothed with shame, and let them cover themselves with their own confusion as with a mantle. I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Yea, I will praise him among the multitude, for he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those that condemn his soul. Pretty harsh words, isn't it? Uh, notice it is, a, 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 the inscription anyway says it is a psalm of David and uh, there are several guesses as to the occasion that might have prompted a psalm like this from the mouth of David in his day. Uh, some guess that it is his psalm directed at Doeg, Doeg the Edomite. You remember the fellow that betrayed him when he went to Abimelech and got the showbread to eat and gave him Goliath's sword there and Doeg became the uh, betrayer of David, plus he's the one who was first to fall upon the priest there when Saul went down to Nob and began to interrogate the priest. Why did you help David? Of course, they didn't know what was up. They didn't know David was fleeing from Saul, but it didn't matter. Saul commanded his men to slay them, and they were fearful to slay the priest, but Doeg did it anyway. So Doeg's a pretty good candidate. Some guess Absalom his own son, when he turned against him and drove his father from the throne. I think that's rather doubtful, seeing the pitiful wail of David after Absalom's death. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, oh, to God I had died for thee. I doubt that. I believe it is messianic, and I find myself in the minority. Uh, Spurgeon, for instance, when he discusses this, says our Lord would never utter such words, would never say such things. Uh, my problem is, I don't know who else could say such things and be innocent in saying them outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will give you my reasons as we go. Uh, that non Number one, he, he alone is in a position, uh, the only one in a position to pray a prayer like this and do it without sinning. Plus, there's a lot of scriptural evidence that ties this to our Lord. And we'll take a look at that as we go. Notice we can divide it up in about three different sections. The first five verses describes what's happening. It describes the uh, crime of the persecutors of the Sabbaths. This is what they're doing to him. Then we have from verse 6 through 20, the bulk of the psalm, the middle, middle section there, is the desire to see the wicked punished. This is the imprecatory. You, know, you understand what I mean by imprecatory? It is praying for a curse or a judgment to fall on your enemies. So this from verse 6 down through verse 20 is that section. And then there at the end from verse 21 through the verse 31, we see the psalmist plea for mercy for God to come to his aid. Well, it's a difficult psalm to say the least, but let's just observe, first of all, what's going on. It is a crime that is being committed by the psalmist's enemies. And notice that they are, first of all, sinning with their mouths. In verse 2, it's what they're speaking. It's the lies that they are telling. 
lies in words in verse 3 that are full of hatred. And it is here that he says that they hate him or they fight against him without a cause. Now that alone should give us some hint that this might be speaking of Christ. Um, For instance, hold your finger here and go over to Psalm number 69. Just a couple of Sundays ago we examined this when we saw that phrase in the book of Job that God was being moved against Job, he said, without a cause, and pointed that out that this phrase, this kinam is the word, appears in a number of places, but Psalm 69 in particular, and I must remind you, Psalm 69 is one of the clearest depictions of the cross that you're going to find in the Old Testament. There's about three chapters that are clear depictions of the cross. Psalm 22, which describes the events, the outward event. Um, Psalm 69, which describes sort of the inward suffering of the one suffering. And then, of course, Isaiah 53, that gives us what we might call the theology of the cross, what's really going on at the cross. But Psalm 69 clearly is messianic. And notice in Psalm 69 and verse 4, The statement is made, they that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongly, are mighty, and then I restored that which I took away. Now everybody agrees that this is talking about Jesus. This is a prophetic utterance concerning the sufferings of the Messiah that's going to be happening in about a thousand years. Well, I'm just pointing out that we have a similar statement here in Psalm 109. Same type of thing going on. They are fighting against him. They are mocking him. They are lying and speaking against him. And they are doing it, according to the psalmist, without a cause. Meaning, again, no reason. For no reason. Or what we might say, for no good reason. There's a cause, of course. But the cause is not any evil in the psalmist himself any more than there is cause in Job. That's what God is saying. He's doing these things to Job without a cause. That is, there's a higher cause, of course. There's a conflict with Satan going on in the heavens. But but there's no reason in Job why he's doing this. So notice the psalmist is making the same type of statement. Uh, Are you still in Psalm 69? Notice that Psalm 69 has an imprecatory section that reads almost identical to what we've just read here in Psalm 109. Uh, Let your eyes drift down to Psalm 69, verse 22. Psalm 69, 22. Notice the imprecations here. Let their table become a snare, that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their heart eyes be darkened, that they see not, make their loins continually to shake. Pour out your indignation upon them, let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation be desolate. Let none dwell in their tent. Do you see what I'm saying? It's almost the same thing. Not in the same order, not with the same words, but pour out your wrath on these people or this person. Um, Why? Verse 26, For they persecute him whom thou hast smitten. And again, there's no reason. In other words, here it's back to being persecuted without a cause. They think it's sort of like dog pile. Y'all ever played dog pile on somebody? They see somebody suffering, they assume he's suffering for his sin, and they just pile it on. They just bring on the accusations, and they don't realize that he is not suffering for his own faults. 
But notice just the similarity between this imprecatory section here in Psalm 69, which everybody believes is talking about Jesus, and the whole Psalm 109, or at least the middle portion that we talked about, that says virtually the same thing. Maybe a little, uh, a little more explicit. I mean, let his kids be orphaned. Let them be begging in the dumpster for their food, so forth. Pretty, pretty strong language. Notice that is the charge that Jesus himself says was laid against him. In John 15, he said, I came, I spoke to them the truth, and they hated me without a cause. Point is, if I would lied to them, they'd love me. But because I told them the truth, they hate me, and so they hate me without a cause. Notice here in verse 4, why do they hate him? Verse 4, he says, For my love they are my adversaries. One old Puritan writer put it like this, They hated him because of excessive love. The highway patrol pulled him over because he exceeded the love limit. <laughs> you know, he's going too fast, too fast in the love lane. In other words, you, you think about it. I mean, how ridiculous. That's what the psalmist is saying. The reason I'm being hated by these people is because I love them. And how ridiculous to hate Jesus when you really think about it. Why would you fear him? You know, here comes Jesus into town. You know, get the kids off the street. <laughs> you know, he's liable to bless them. Get, get him away from the grocery store. He's liable to multiply the loaves. Take, get those sick people out of here. He's liable to heal them. And for heaven's sake, don't let him go near the graveyard. <laughs> you know, <laughs> why would you hate Jesus? And that's what the psalmist is saying. They hated me for excessive love. For my love, they are my adversaries. They hate me because I love them. That's, a, that's an interesting way of putting it. They reward, notice in verse 5, his good with evil. It's sort of like the opposite of what we are commanded to do, that we're to overcome evil with good. They are overcoming good with evil. So that's the crime, that's the charge that is being laid at their feet. So, that takes us to the second section here, which is the imprecation. That is, the desire to see evil befall them. Now, let's stop a moment, and the reason that someone like Spurgeon would say that this just doesn't fit the Lord is they would say that, well, at the cross, what did he pray? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I certainly believe that there was a huge segment of those involved in the crucifixion that did not realize what they were doing. It was ignorant sin. They didn't realize what was happening. I also believe that connected with the crucifixion of Christ, there were some who knew exactly what they were doing. So I don't think this is directed towards everybody. It seems to be directed especially towards one man. I want you to notice that we have gone, for, in the first five verses, you have the plural, they, they, they. Then in verse 6, set thou a wicked man over him. We be in particular, we are singling out one person for this woe, this pronouncement of judgment upon him. Notice that what, the psalmist desires God to do. The speaker is asking God to put a wicked person over him. Set someone as his authority who is as wicked as he is or worse. 
And notice, especially in the last part of verse 6, this is fascinating, especially in our study of Job. Let Satan stand at his right hand. Now, when somebody stands at your right hand, we're going to see God standing at the right hand of the poor and needy down here at the end of the psalm. But it's the idea that either they are the one who are sponsoring, they're the, they're the uh, geo is the old Hebrew word, the redeemer, the one who comes to your aid, or in when Satan stands at your right hand, he's always seen in the guise of a prosecutor. Uh, there's another place, hold your finger here, go to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, and and again, this is in keeping with what we have seen in the book of Job, that we think that Satan is just, you know, this lizard-like creature, red with a pitchfork, stabbing everybody in hell. And what we don't realize is that Satan actually is a lawman. He's a prosecutor. He's the, uh, what did I say, Aaron Burr? That's not exactly right. Raymond Burr, who was... uh, the prosecutor, as, as somebody said, the most incompetent prosecutor that must have ever lived, never won a case that I ever saw. <laughs> I don't think he would stay in office very long if you had a record like that guy against Perry Mason. But anyway, all of that to say, the prosecutor is not somebody who is trying, in other words, trying to get you to sin. The prosecutor is trying to stick you with sin. Right? That's what the prosecutor's trying to do. He's trying to lay a charge against you that God cannot ignore. And so Satan brings us into judgment. In other words, we tend to think that it's the devil that puts the desire to sin in us. And that's that's not it at all. The devil, as is happening in the case of Job, may set up a sting operation, but the sting operation doesn't make you sin. The sting operation never made anybody a criminal. It gave them the opportunity to show that they were criminal. Isn't that right? I mean, we got a lawman sitting right over here. Matthew, when you set up a sting, all you're doing is giving the bad guys an opportunity to do bad. Don't make them do bad. You just give them the opportunity. That is exactly what Satan is doing. That's what's happening in Job's case. And once we sin, then Satan is there to stand before God and accuse us. And accuse us of what? Well, sin. And accuse us of then being under the condemnation of God's judgment. In other words, Satan's grip on us is because of sin. Because the penalty attached to sin is death. So if he can get you to sin, he's got you. If he can make you charge stick, in the courtroom of heaven, he's got you. You're in Zechariah yet? Zechariah 3, verse 1. Zechariah has a vision here. He says, he showed me Joshua. And this is not the Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. It's not that Joshua. That's a long time ago. This is Joshua the high priest. It's in the days of the remnant coming back from Babylon, from captivity. So notice he has a vision. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. You see, Satan is in the guise of the adversary. He's the one who's who's trying to lay the charge. And notice verse 2, The Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuked thee, O Satan. Even the Lord who hath chosen Jerusalem rebuked thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? 
Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, stood before the angel, and he answered and spoke unto those who stood before him. This is the angel speaking, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. So in the next verse they put clean clothes on Joshua the high priest. Notice the idea is, is that Satan is there to accuse him. And yet God ordains that his iniquity, the dirty clothes, be taken away, and he's clothed with clean clothes. It's what we call imputation, just a picture of it there, so that the charge doesn't stick. His sin doesn't stick to it. That's what David said, blessed is the man to whom God will not impute sin. I mean, that's a pretty good fella. I mean, oh, he's not good, he's got sin, but God won't make it stick. So that's, that's how we're saved, by the way. Not because we have an absence of sins, but because our sin can't be charged to us. It's put somebody else's charge account. Okay? So notice again, we have the same type of picture. Satan standing at the right hand. And in this psalm, that's what the psalmist is saying. Let Satan stand right there at his right side to accuse him before the judgment seat of God. Turn him over to the devil. Let the devil have his way with him. Let him plead and prosecute the case. Then, of course, and we read this a moment ago, so I won't go through all of it. Uh, I, I guess i gotta, I got to stop here at some point and tell you who I think this man is. Anybody have a guess? Seems pretty obvious it's Judas, doesn't it? That this is the man that this psalm is being directed towards. You say, well, why would you think that? Look in verse 8. Psalm, six, uh, psalm 109, verse 8. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Now again, you're going to have to have about three fingers to make this work. Stick one finger here. Go back to Psalm 69. Remember we have this imprecatory section of Psalm 69? Look at verse 25. Let their habitation be desolate and let none dwell in their tents. Okay, let's remember. We got this statement, Psalm 69, set their, their habitation. That's where they live. Let their house fall down. Let it be desolated. Let nobody, what's he say? Let nobody dwell in their tents. Then here in Psalm 109, we say, Let his days be few, let another take his office. Now go to Acts 1. In Acts 1, the disciples in verse 15 get together, and they say in verse 16 that God spoke in the Scriptures concerning Judah. See that? This, he says, verse 16, Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost, by the mouth of David, spoke before concerning Judas, who was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us, had obtained part in this ministry. He was considered one of the disciples. And he failed and his innards bust out. They assume that he hung himself, and in the process this, this occurred. And everybody knew about it in verse 19. Well, what scripture is it that he says David spoke 
that's got to be fulfilled. Look at verse 20. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein. Where do we read that? That's Psalm 69. And his bishopric. It is the Hebrew, it's the Greek word episkopos. The Episcopalians get their name from this word. The overseer. It is the exact word if we were to read Psalm 109, verse 9, or, or verse 8, which says, let another his office take. If we were reading that out of the Greek Septuagint, we would find exactly the same word. Episcopus. His office. Let another his office take. Notice what Peter has done here. He has quoted a text in Psalm 69 that everybody says is talking about the Messiah. And then in the very next breath quotes one out of Psalm 109 and puts them together and applies both of them to Judas. That pretty much for me settles the case. This is the man who is in view in both these Psalms, in Psalm 69 plus here in Psalm 109. This is talking specifically about Judas. Now, make that clear? You, you see the connection. And it, isn't it interesting that Peter quotes out of the Psalms, but he quotes from two different Psalms, a verse from Psalm 69, Psalm 109, and blends them together and applies both of them to Judas. So both Psalms must be addressing Judas. And then notice that there is, of course, a declaration against his family. The bottom line is, wipe his family name out of the earth. Let his line be over, done, finished, forgotten. There is a desire clearly for what we call retributive justice. We've been talking using that term in reference to legalism. Uh, retributive justice means that when you sin, you do something wrong, you have wrong coming to you. you. You have forfeited a blessing when you do something wrong to somebody. You go and rob somebody, you're going to forfeit a few years in the state pen. That's the way retributive justice works. And clearly, here, the psalmist is asking God to reward this man for his evil with evil. Uh, not only do you blot his name out, but he loved the curse, he says. So uh, let a curse adhere to him. In fact, let it go clear to his bones. Interesting the way the expression's here. Let it enter into his inward parts, not just outwardly, but let his, this curse cleave to him like you'd put clothes on. Let it be his girdle. Gird him with a curse. Isn't that strange? In other words, let, let him never be able to escape this curse. Let it cling to him like a garment. Let that be his reward and his covering. And then... In verse 21, down to the end of the psalm, we see the final section where the psalmist is pleading for mercy from his God. Uh, verse 22, I'm poor and needy. I, I read those words and I think of Joseph Hart's hymn, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you. Well, that's the, the deal here. God, hear me, because I'm poor and, and needy. My heart is Wounded, He says in verse 23, I'm gone like the shadow when it declineth. The shadow just sort of slowly, just sort of, what did MacArthur say? Old soldiers never die, they just fade away. 
Well, I'm fading out. I'm, I'm just going down. Um, my knees are weak through fasting. My flesh faileth of fatness and skin and bones. That's my theory. When the seven lean years hit, it's all you skinny folks going to go first. I'm storing up like Joseph. Uh, but notice here, there is no reserve. He, he, is, he is just wasting away, and he's become a reproach. They shake their heads. Again, I don't, won't have you turn over there. Isaiah 53, all they that see me shake their heads. They say he trusted in God. Let him deliver him if he will have him. Right, Psalm 22. Wrong text. Right text, wrong reference, okay? He trusted in God. All they that see Him shake their heads and say He trusted in God. Let Him have Him if He'll have Him. And so, very very similar words being spoken here. Notice that He asked God to reverse. Verse 28. Here's the curses. Reverse those curses and let blessing. And I don't want to skip over verse 27. He says that they may know that this is thy hand, that thou, Lord, hast done it. In other words, why am I suffering? It is not for my sin. It is without cause in that sense. But it is your hand. It is your will that has put me on the cross. And show that to them. Let them see that I'm not suffering for my own griefs, my own sins. I'm suffering for the sins and sorrows of others. And so, when they curse, bless you. Let them be covered with shame and confusion. But I'll praise you because you will stand, verse 31, at the right hand of the poor to save him from those that condemn his soul. In other words, your God becomes your attorney That's a marvelous thought. Uh, my wife worked as a paralegal over in Nashville uh, with a law firm over there. And they were constantly, this big law firm, and they had these guys that were just fresh out of law school and could barely tie their shoes, let alone do anything worth doing. I mean, they were literally, these associates uh, hardly knew enough to come in out of the rain. And... Uh, Typically, they would have to go to court right at 5 o'clock. Sue, you probably understand this, to file some papers. And Linda, because she's a paralegal, she cannot go past the bar. You know, the bar is that which separates the judge from everybody else. So when you pass the bar exam, it means that you now can go past the bar. You can approach the judge. And since Linda was a paralegal, she couldn't go past the bar, but she would grab one of these associate attorneys explaining to them on the way down there what they're supposed to do when they get there. I mean, they have a clue what they were doing or what this was all about, but they had to do it. They had to go and because she couldn't approach the judge, but they could. So one day she went in there with this associate attorney. She's getting all her papers together, and she looks around, and he sat down on the wrong side of the courtroom. I mean, I know that much from watching Perry Mason that the defense sits over here and the prosecutor sits over here, right? Everybody knows that. Well, he was sitting on the wrong side. <laughs> I mean, this guy was green, green as they come. But I'm thinking about that, of what a wonderful statement this is, that God is going to stand at our right hand, that our attorney, 
our defense attorney is going to stand where the prosecutor normally stands. Uh, suppose you went in and you are condemned, you are being charged with a grievous crime, and your lawyer is sitting there with you at the table and you're waiting for the judge to come in, and all of a sudden the bailiff come in and says that the honorable so-and-so-and-so-and-so will all rise, and everybody stands up, and your lawyer leaves the table and walks up and sits down in the judge's chair. Everybody sits down. What would be your reaction? I believe we're going to do just fine. <laughs> because, you see, we not only have an attorney that will plead our case, but we got a lawyer. you never find another lawyer like this who will go to jail for you who pay the penalty for you, pay the fine for you, who will suffer the punishment. Not only will He take your case and plead your cause, He will take the punishment you deserve. You ever find you an attorney like that, you better hang on to Him, because you're never going to find another one. And notice that's what's being described here, is that the psalmist is asking for God to be the one who would have mercy and pity and stand at His right hand, and so that his prosecutor is out of the picture, it is the defense of God Almighty that is getting him off. Well, let's, let's um, stop here and just talk about this just a minute. Uh, there is a thing called the unpardonable sin. And Judas committed it. You say, well, what do you mean by the unpardonable sin? I mean a sin for which there will be no forgiveness. Jesus, when He prays for the disciples in John 17, He's careful to exclude Judas. I've kept every one of them except the son of perdition so that the Scripture might be fulfilled. When He's about to go to Gethsemane, He tells Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me three times, but I've prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Here is a Savior who will pray for a denying Peter, but he refuses to pray for a betraying Judas. And when we see Judas's name mentioned, much like we saw it there in the book of Acts, they've got nothing good to say. They're not holding a prayer vigil. They're not burning candles for the dead, hoping maybe they can pray old Judas up to the third heaven. Every time they mention His name, the one who betrayed our Lord. There is no forgiveness for this, neither in this life nor the next. Jesus said that, well, I'm going to say this Sunday, so you're going to hear it twice. Job says, basically from last week, it's better for me that I'd never been born. There are some people, it would be better if they'd never been born. Jesus says that of Judas. It would have been better for him to never been born than to do what he's going to do. It, is, it appears to me that there were also some in the leadership of Israel, Caiaphas the high priest, Annas the high priest, who also did what they did, not because they were ignorant. You couldn't save them, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, Roman soldiers and the crowd and all that, they didn't know what they were doing. They were just following the lead. But these who were the leaders of Israel, they knew what they were doing. 
Caiaphas makes it very clear when he calls the council together and said, this guy's got to go because it's either him or us. We can't let him, can't let him go on. What pushed him over the edge? Back up one story. You know what just happened just before that? Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. In other words, now it's pretty clear who he is. And we can't afford this. We can't let him go on. So there is a point where these commit a sin from which there will be no retreat. There will be no forgiveness. I know, in essence, every time I ever have mentioned the unpardonable sin, somebody comes to me and afraid they've committed it. And I'm first to tell them the, one of the best evidences that's not true of you is the fact that you're here. You wouldn't be here. This is a sin against light and thrusting light away, wanting to be in the darkness as dark as you can get it. That's the result of this sin. It is unforgivable because it is in a peculiar way a sin, a knowledgeable sin against the remedy for sin itself. It's hurling away the remedy, utterly putting it out of your life. And here's what awaits that person. All right, what what do y'all think? You about ready to go pray some imprecatory prayers on your neighbors and uh, let's let's make a few observations here. It is one thing for Jesus to, to pray this. It's quite another thing for you and me. Is that he alone has the right to be the judge. When the scripture says, judge not that you be not judged, it's not talking about not making moral distinctions. We all do that. In fact, you uh, who is it? Don Carson, he uh, said up in Canada the last time I heard him, he said, used to be the best known scripture was uh, God's love of the world. He says, nowadays it's judge not that you be not judged. That's the best. Everybody knows that. Lost man. First time you say, well, that's sin. He said, well, you're judging me. He says, don't judge. The point of that script, and, and by the way, he pointed out they're making the moral distinction. They're doing the very thing. They're saying you're evil for judging them, which means you're, they're judging you. You notice that? They're doing the very thing they're condemning you to do, of doing. Good observation. But it doesn't mean that you don't make moral distinctions. It means that you are not qualified to be the judge, jury, and executioner. The judgment belongs to the Lord. Vengeance is His, not yours. The Lord will repay. That's part of the trial of our faith is that we believe that. That we believe that, yes, God will settle accounts. I don't have to get all on my high horse. I don't have to, uh, you know, get my firearms out and my 30 six because nobody's going to take care of this dude if I don't. God will take care of him. We have his word. We have his promise. And therefore, he says, vengeance is mine. It's not yours. So we're not qualified. We don't, we don't know the case. We don't know the evidence, do we? We and first, <laughs> most of all, because we're just forgiven criminals ourselves. You know, can you imagine the guy who gets a pardon from prison, walks out the front door, and then turns around and says, "Boy, there are a bunch of wicked folks in there." <laughs> he was just there, you know. We don't have; we're not qualified. So let's let's always keep that in mind. On the other hand, Jesus is the one God, Peter, uh, Paul, I'll get there in a minute. Paul said, 
God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He has ordained. So this is the righteous judge. May I point out, too, that we don't like to hear this stuff about, well, let his wife be a widow and let his kids be orphaned and so forth. Have you ever thought about it? How else is God going to judge somebody? Let's take Judas. If God judges Judas, his wife's going to be a widow. His children are going to be orphans. They're not going to have a food supply. So you say, well, you can't touch Judas because his wife and his kids are going to suffer? Every single time God judged any individual, his family suffered. That's just the way it is. You can't avoid that if you're going to judge. And for every winner, there's a loser. We want everybody to win. Everybody gets a participation ribbon today. No winners. But there are winners in the day of judgment, and there are losers. And the same omnipotence that gives blessing to the blessed gives judgment to the cursed. So let's not forget that. There's probably some other considerations that I need to remind you of. Charles, you waving or scratching? I'm just saying that, let's, let's put it this way. Um, and several of the people I read, uh, of course some of them I didn't agree with, but almost all of them point out the fact that in the Old Testament there, there is much more emphasis on judgment than there is on mercy. It's not that there, one's absent and the other's there, but certainly the emphasis in the Old Testament is on judgment. And they point out that James and John came real close to praying a prayer like this when that Samaritan village wouldn't receive them. And they said, do you want us to call down fire on them like Elijah did? And now let's stop a minute. Elijah did call down fire. Burned up a bunch of folks. And so James and John, out of their zealousness for Christ, they're, they're not trying to toot their own horn here. They say, here's a village that deserves to perish. Shall we call down fire from heaven and destroy them? And Jesus says, you know not what manner of spirit you're of, for the Son of Man is not come to destroy lives, but to save them. And that, again, is something to keep in mind, that in this New Testament day, our job, our mission, is not judgment. Christ will come back one day and destroy But his mission at the moment is mercy. And his disciples ought to reflect that mission. You see what I'm saying? And therein lies our calling. Uh, We saw that, didn't we, when we were talking about 2 Corinthians 5, that we are now the reconcilers who were once the reconciled. And we've been brought into this ministry of reconciliation. That's our calling. That's our task. Uh, our job is not to get even with everybody. We're going to leave that to Christ at His second coming. In the meanwhile, what are we supposed to be doing? And so, in other words, Charles, it's putting into contrast that statement of John in, in chapter 1, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. There's a different flavor, shall we say, to this age.
Exactly. Exactly. Okay, just want to make sure nobody's going to go home, get their gun out of the closet, and go after their, their next door neighbor or something. Uh, that we understand what what we're up to, and yet at the same time, sometimes we we are in danger, I think, of emphasizing the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, to the extent that we almost obliterate the judgment. And that this merciful, gracious, loving God is a God who will judge. And here we see the Son of Man will one day consign... uh, Of course, there's the 24-hour Pope channel going on right now. I was telling David tonight that if the Catholics had any sense, they'd have drugged this thing out a week or so because they're getting round-the-clock coverage for free. Talk about a propaganda thing. Anyway, y'all heard probably they elected another pope. I say they, not we, but they. And um, in some of the news coverage, they saw the showed the cardinals going into the Sistine Chapel and brought back memories of last spring standing in that chapel. And Michelangelo's work on the ceiling is marvelous. The story of the Bible, basically, all the way from creation to the apostles. But for me, the real masterpiece is the last judgment down at the end. Uh, Michelangelo was in his 20s when he painted the ceiling. He never painted another thing till 20 years later they brought him back to paint the last judgment. He thought he was a sculptor. He didn't think he was much of a painter. But the Last Judgment is depicting the moment. You'll see Christ with His hand like this when He is consigning those on His left hand. Depart from Me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. It is trying to capture that instant. Mary is there under His arm but no longer pleading with him as you see in so much of the Catholic stuff. He is surrounded by the martyrs holding up the implements of their martyrdom. Sebastian there with the arrows. Uh, the story is he was a Roman centurion that they shot arrows into till he was dead. You have St. Catherine holding up the grill that she was roasted on. And then you have Bartholomew, the most interesting one, down at the foot of Jesus. If you get a chance to see that they showed this on TV, see if you can see this. Bartholomew, just under his left foot, with a knife holding his skin. He was martyred by being skinned alive. And the martyrs are holding up the implements of their martyrdom, and it is capturing what we read in the book of Revelation. The fifth seal was broken. And I saw under the altars those who were beheaded for the gospel's sake, saying, How long before you avenge our blood on those that dwell on the earth? It is that instant when the avenging takes place. It is a marvelous thing. I mean, I, it, and it's unfortunate they turn it into a shrine and an idol, but it is a marvelous piece of work what Michelangelo was saying in that picture. But it is a reminder 
that there's a day of judgment coming. And little Jesus, meek and mild, is going to be the judge. He's not going to be meek and mild that day when souls of men are consigned into everlasting torment. So it's a reminder this is serious business we're dealing with. All right, I'll hush, get off my high horse. Nobody's going to go home, get their 30 out 6 out, okay? Let us pray. Let us in the meanwhile rejoice that we have a throne of mercy, a throne of grace to come before. Because if we are ever shut out of that throne, here's what we've read in this psalm is what will be our due. These curses placed upon us.